I think this past week's display of white supremacy in our country disturbed all of us, or it should have. Uh, However, most disturbing to me about what went down in Charlottesville last week, and for some of us this hits pretty close to home, is even Nate Hersher and Emily, who was singing, they're they're University of Virginia graduates. Uh, Some of what and probably what most disturbs me in listening to the words of the neo-Nazi is how these racists have conflated their brand of hatred with American and Christian values, trying to tie somehow or another a Christian message into something so ugly and evil as racism. You know, this isn't new. It's not new to our country even. The Ku Klux Klan has always tried to associate itself with the Christian church. This image of a Klan rally taking place at a church is one of the more disturbing images from the 20th century America. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that, this was, that anybody thought that this would be a good idea. Now, I think that the church has to be more vocal in our day Too often, churches have remained quiet. This past week, Tim Keller, who was the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York and the Redeemer Redeemer City-to-City Network and an author that many of us consider a distant mentor. I mean, I've never met him, but I listen and read everything he says, and it's really shaped a lot of what I think. Dr. Keller said this, quote, 20th century fascist movements that made absolute values out of blood and boden, which is blood and soil, putting one race and one nation's good above the good of all, also claimed to champion traditional family values and moral virtues over against the decadence of relativistic modern culture. Even though they were no friends of Orthodox Christianity, see Adolf Hitler's heretical positive Christian Christianity movement, they could and can still appeal to people within our own circles. Internet outreach from white nationalist organizations can radicalize people who are disaffected by moral decline in society. So it is absolutely crucial to speak up about the biblical teaching on racism. Not now, but routinely. We need to make those in our circles impervious to this toxic teaching. This isn't theoretical for Carolyn and I. And when we moved to Ocala in 1990, we went to church, and one of the friends that we had acquainted ourselves with that was in our small group, not a year after we left Ocala, joined a white nationalist armed militia. I mean, this is how... They grow their movement. They take people who seemingly are frightened for some reason or other and have some connection to Christian themes and then pull them in. Now, while white supremacists foolishly and unbiblically often define themselves as Christian, their egregious error makes sense when you understand this principle. Whatever is most important in your life, whether it be your race, your politics, your sexuality, or anything other than Jesus, that will most certainly redefine your definition of who Jesus is and how you will live for him. 
We continue our Gospel and Real Life series with a look today at the gospel and identity. And I have two what I'm going to call real-life identity rules that I'm going to introduce today from a passage where Jesus heals somebody on Sunday and then explains the impact of the kingdom of God and what we're to do in this world. And really, the two parts of this story illustrate today for us two very clear rules about identity. And the first real-life identity rule is this. Our primary identity shapes our secondary ones. Our primary identity shapes our secondary ones. In Luke 13, Jesus had healed a woman on the Sabbath, and the Jews reacted negatively and angrily towards his actions and said, In verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? I love that Jesus didn't mince words here. He called them hypocrites. He was saying, you are treating animals better than you're treating this woman. His concern and his care, his outrage forced him to confront them very strongly and say, you're hypocrites. The Pharisees were committed to their religious belief that they would be made right with God through strict adherence to the interpretation of the Old Testament law. Therefore, when Jesus comes along with a different definition of what their world should look like, They react angrily to him. Their primary identity as law keepers meant they had to reshape their definition of who this man in front of them was. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't a great teacher. He was a heretic. And from this point on, they said, we're going to plot to kill this man. But the principle for them was still the same. Whatever is most important, whatever is our central identity in life, will redefine both our definition of Jesus and how we practice faith in him. Your primary identity, my primary identity, is something that is centrally important to us. And we will necessarily redefine secondary beliefs to fit that primary one. In scholastic terms, we may refer to that as cognitive dissonance that there are two seemingly contradictory things in our life. And in order to make the square peg fit into the round hole, we have to shave the edges off the square peg. This is how a white supremacist can mesh Christianity. They just chop pieces of it away. If your sexual identity is your number one identity, you will redefine all of your secondary beliefs to fit neatly inside that primary one. And this is particularly true for people who exalt their identity politics to the ultimate place in their lives. If you're a Christian Republican, and I say that very intentionally that way, Christian is your first identity, and you do have a secondary identity, perhaps it's a political party you're affiliated with, Your identification as a child of God requires a first allegiance to Scripture. And so when your party's political commitments come up against biblical teachings, you're going to have to break with the grand old party 
Your Christian identity would require it. Silence in the face of injustice and evil is complicity. And when you fail to speak truth to power, whatever that power may be, you become participants with it. And you forfeit the prophetic voice that God has given you as an ambassador of his kingdom. Christians need to be careful that we don't forfeit our role as Jesus' representative to this world in our desire to be highly exalted in our worldly kingdoms. Ed Stetzer was the director of research for Lifeway and uh, has since gone on to be the director of the Billy Graham Training Center at Wheaton College. And this past week, in response to uh, what he began to see as a lot of silence on the part of the church and a lot of support in ways that he didn't think was uh, being viewed well by the world around us, he tweeted... If you're a Christian Trump supporter but cannot critique him when he is wrong, the world is watching and sees your primary loyalty. In other words, you're a Trump Christian. He continued in a Christianity Today article, Whomever you perceive as perfect, you will elevate as Savior and worship as a God. This is 21st century idolatry. And this is where we find our biblical text guiding us today, that Christians first and foremost are part of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of God transcends earthly kingdoms, earthly races, and earthly political parties. And whenever your allegiance to a province, a people, or a party becomes more central to your identity than Christ's kingdom, you are in sin. And increasingly, you will think and act sinfully. Jesus, in praying for his disciples previous to his being turned over to be crucified for our sins, prayed this to the Father about us and his followers. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then before the Romans, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So what does it mean to be primarily identified with the kingdom of God? Uh, What is Jesus talking about? What is the relationship between Jesus' kingdom and the world in which we live? Well, our real-life identity rule, number one, was that our primary identity shapes our secondary ones. What we'll see from Jesus' teaching here in verses 18 through 21 of Luke 13 is primary identity rule number two, and that is our kingdom identity should saturate our world. Our identity with Jesus is supposed to functionally work its way in and through and really transcend any world that we live in, any culture that we live in. Whatever your nationality, whatever governmental system you're in, your Christian identity as part of Christ's kingdom is supposed to penetrate that and affect it. Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, 
and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus is saying his kingdom transcends and penetrates the world in which we live. When you look at a loaf of bread versus a stack of matzah crackers, you see the difference that leaven makes. It's what makes bread rise. When the dough is being kneaded, the the leaven is actually invisible. It's only after it's baked that you see the effect that the leaven has on the loaf. Leaven is virtually invisible, and in the same way, you don't see tree seeds in the ground when they're first planted. Only after the dirt is mixed with water and sunlight do they all come together and a tree begin to grow, and then what has been made is a blessing to the birds and to people who live around it. This is how our kingdom identity, our citizenship in Christ's family, Christ's invisible kingdom, this is how it saturates the world around us and actually brings cultural change, which is why Jesus would have taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God transcending and penetrating our lives in such a way that people begin to see the glory of God manifest in the way we relate to them and the way they relate to each other in the way we relate to each other. Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary in Escondido has written a terrific article about the kingdom of God and an issue of Ligonier Ministries Table Talk magazine. And if you want to email me this week, chuck at prismchurch.com, I will send you the link or send you a PDF copy of the article. I will refer substantially to it here, uh, so I wanted to be careful to attribute it to him so that if you do read the article, you won't think I tried to pass off his scholarship as my own. Uh, in 410 A.D., the pagans, and that's just not a derogatory term for people who don't believe in God, that was an actual party of people, destroyed Rome, and in so doing destroyed the emperor Constantine's attempt to create a Christian empire. In the aftermath, St. Augustine of Hippo wrote his classic book, The City of God. One of his compatriots, St. Jerome, collapsed in despair, reportedly saying, what is to become of the church now that Rome has fallen. Augustine likely felt the same way, but as a Christian, he dealt with his appointments in light of the providence of God by saying, the Lord has brought the mission field to the missionaries. And what Augustine was principally worried about after the fall of Rome was whether or not true believers were left in an empire that had weakened Christianity as it allowed it to become its nation's civil religion. Does that ring any familiar bells with some of you? This is what Dr. Horton has to say. Quote, In our Christian circles in the United States today, we can discern a Christendom view, where some imagine America to be a Christian nation invested with a divine commission to bring freedom to the ends of the earth. Of course, Christians have an obligation to both, both to proclaim the heavenly and everlasting freedom of the gospel and the earthly and temporal freedom from injustice. But they are different. When we confuse them, 
we take the kingdom into our own hands, transforming it from a kingdom of grace into a kingdom of glory and power. We as Christians, and I love saying this, are like secret agents. We are like covert spies. I I love to talk like that because it kind of appeals to that part of me that always wanted to be like a James Bond. Well, without all the adultery, you know what I'm saying. Uh, (laughs) We are citizens of two kingdoms, but the invisible kingdom of Christ is our highest allegiance And the upside-down values of that kingdom, values like selflessness and sacrifice and radical humility, these are what we are covertly attempting to introduce into the dough of our culture like leaven. We want our culture to rise. We want to make a difference in whatever earthly kingdom we may find ourselves living in, a country, a city, a culture perhaps your workplace, maybe even your church. But we always know, even as we live in this kingdom, that our primary identification is as the children of God, the beloved children of a gracious Father. We are citizens of Christ's invisible kingdom. Now, many scholars interpret Augustine's city of God differently, but it did help to develop what's come to be known as the doctrine of two kingdoms. And According to Augustine, the distinction between the two cities, the city of God and the city of man, is grounded in two loves, the love of God and the love of self. God's love leads to genuine fellowship and the communion of mutual giving and receiving. And as many of us can testify by our own brokenness, self-love engenders strife, war, and a desire to exercise dominion over others. And we as Citizens of the city of God are coming to the city of man and living as people who are primarily citizens of the city of God. Both in the Old and New Testament, the term kingdom is understood to mean the rule or reign of a king. Surprisingly, it's seldom used to refer to a territory, and most Christian scholars think it would be better to translate the expression kingdom of God as the rule of God. And when it's understood this way, it's possible to see how John the Baptist could announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that Jesus could declare the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the reign of God. In the coming of our Messiah, Jesus, Satan was defeated and many Old Testament promises were fulfilled. The resurrection of the dead has begun. A new covenant was inaugurated and the promised Holy Spirit has come to live inside the sons and daughters of God. In many ways, Christ's kingdom is realized in what theologians will call the now. However, there are portions of Christ's redemptive act, Christ's kingdom, that have yet to be fulfilled. His second coming, his final resurrection, the elimination of death, tears, and pain. These are the not yet components of our End times theology, our eschatology. God's kingdom is both now and not yet. A new covenant has been established. But its final manifestation and consummation are in the future kingdom of God. And until then, we're called to be faithful citizens here in the city of man. The kingdoms of our earth. 
Michael Horton would encourage us, and again I quote from him, we need not choose between these two kingdoms. Citizens of both, we carry out our vocations in the church and the world in distinct ways through distinct means. We need not Christianize culture in order to appreciate it and participate in it with the gifts that God has given us as well as our non-Christian neighbors. Though called to be faithful in our callings until Christ returns with Abraham, we are, quote, looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So where does the notion of the kingdom of God, where's the notion of our identity as its citizens intersect with the gospel in real life? Well, the values of the city of God, the kingdom of God, the values of being a child of God transcend and oftentimes contradict the values of this world, which means that oftentimes you're going to be called to live in a way that would point to this kingdom at the workplace. You may be somebody who says, I'm going to let somebody else take first place I'm going to be the tail instead of the head. I'm going to be the servant in quiet instead of the superstar. I'm going to do something that makes somebody else look exalted and great. I'm going to be the humble one. They're going to be the great one. This upside-down value is a Christian kingdom. It's a Jesus kingdom value. It may make you seem strange, but Jesus has said there's joy in that, that this is the leaven of our lives. We're to come in and penetrate. We're to be people who are quick to forgive. We're people to be are quick to confess and say, I did it, I blew it, I'm sorry. Humility is supposed to be that which characterizes the Christian. Love is supposed to be that which transcends this world, a biblical love that puts the needs of others first. You may be the only person in your friend's circle who... Your, as your primary identity is as a citizen of heaven and Christ's kingdom, that you may be the only amongst your peers that reads your sexuality through that identity. You may be the only one in your friend group at your workplace who says, the Lord doesn't want me to live with somebody before I'm married the Lord doesn't want me to engage in sexual behavior outside of a covenant of marriage done by the Lord. The Lord is, in his word, are going to be the ones that guide my sexual inclinations, my orientations and all of it are going to be a secondary identity to my primary identity as a child of God and a citizen of heaven. Those values are going to shape who I am. You and I are called, certainly in a political world, to say, I am not going to align with people who are going to do things that violate principles and patterns that are set forth as kingdom principles of love and concern. Hate is not a kingdom value. Arrogance is not a kingdom value. Violence is not a kingdom value. Jesus' kingdom we are called to exhibit that in the way we live, even the way we protest. 
1990, when Carolyn and I moved to Ocala, Florida, it was the first time we'd ever seen a Ku Klux Klan rally. It was in the public square in Ocala. The creepy costumes and everything. When you see it in real life, it's like, oh my Lord, this is not a movie. What was most stunning was that there was nobody there to counter-protest. And we came from the Northeast. If Klan people started marching in the city square where we came from, there would have been a fight. All I could think to do was roll down the window and tell them to go home, and that's not necessarily a really productive means of protest. I mean, I can just say there are better ways to do it. But in the days subsequent, in the years subsequent to that experience, which both of us remember really vividly, I thought, you know, particularly Christians that I knew who were white, we should have been the first ones to show up in the square and peacefully demonstrate, peacefully say to these men, they were primarily men, that you're distorting Christianity. We're not okay with it. We don't want our non-white brothers and sisters to think that we passively sit by and let you twist Christianity into something that it isn't. Oddly, we would have been doing exactly what Jesus said, which is the world would have seen our love for our brothers and sisters, and that's how they would have known we were his disciples. This is where the gospel of the kingdom as our primary identity, as agents of grace and love, as people who will put others first, as the forgiven and beloved children of God, that is who we are. And that means everything in our world is subject to the king of our souls. It was Psalm 145, verses 11 through 13, that said, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Let us pray. Lord, today again, the only possibility we have to be at rest with you, knowing our hearts, is that Jesus has forgiven us and loves us and has put us at rest with you. And it is in that that we come boldly to your throne in our need and we pray, Father, for the witness of your church in our era that we would be boldly opposed to any uh, bastardization of the faith in the name of racial prejudice and hatred. But we would do so because we not only love those who are twisted in their thinking, but we want our brothers and sisters to know that we, like you, care. Principally in our soul, Father, though we're challenged by the teaching about your kingdom that we would find our identity in you and not in what we do and not in what others think of us, not in what we feel or what we want. Father, that nothing would take primary place in our hearts other than what Jesus means to us, the risen Christ filling our souls. And I pray today as we come to the table, that we would once again refresh our hearts with the knowledge that we have been made okay with you in Christ. 
Father, would you minister to my brothers and sisters as we once again bring our hearts to you and ask for you to rule and reign there. For we pray in Jesus' name.